0: Well, good morning, you life. How are you this morning? Good, good, good. So good to be with you today. As Pastor Brady said, this was a really great weekend uh, downtown. You know, a number of churches came together, 1,200 people, 40 different projects all throughout the city. And uh, it represents, we, we kind of did the math on this, it represents 4,700 hours of service gifted to our city. Isn't that amazing? I think it's really, really incredible. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, Just a couple other things about this, New Life Downtown was was privileged to be a part of this, and we had about 120 or or more people, and uh, this morning I heard a story, a lot of the places where they went to serve um, were schools in District 11, and so many of these principals were just blown away that the church and the community wanted... To bless them and i think you you may understand for some of these schools they have money allocated for resources but it's difficult for them to get the hours approved for their staff because it involves weekend and overtime and all that sort of thing so for us to be able to come we had about 50 people that went down to horace mann middle school and they moved 90 yards of mulch So they laid down they spread out 90 yards of mulch i mean it's just unbelievable and, um, and we got an email uh, last night from a teacher who teaches there, and she's a believer, and she's been teaching there for a number of years, and she sent a note to one of our associate pastors and said, you know, I've been here for this many years, and I thought Hope had walked out of the building, and then the church showed up. And she was just so overcome. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then if that wasn't good enough, just this morning at the 9 a.m. at New Life downtown, I saw this couple serving communion wearing matching Peyton Manning jerseys. And then this guy came up to receive communion in a Tom Brady jersey. And they served him communion. So it's like reconciliation. It's, just, it's a, an amazing thing. Hey, let's, let's open in a word of prayer this morning as we get ready to study the scriptures. So Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace that abounds to us. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. Spirit of the living God, would you open our eyes that we would see Jesus today? Would you open our ears that we would hear your word to us today? And would you open our hearts that we would be able to receive, to believe, and to be changed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ? We pray these things in his name and the church said, Amen. 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 Well, it was a powerful service last weekend with all of you last Sunday. And I went home just, you know, kind of really sort of floating on a cloud, just thinking what a beautiful time together of vulnerability Pastor Brady sharing. But I was also a little tired and and when I get to that place, this is what I do. I, I drive through Wendy's. Um, and so, so I got some Wendy's and I'm sitting down on my couch in my living room and uh, my kids are all around. The Bronco game is on. And we have four kids. We have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, uh, and an almost 7-year-old, and then a, a little 4-year-old. And the 4-year-old, she, you know, she really wants us to know that she's there. She really wants us to know that she's just not, she's not going to go quietly, you know, she's, she's there. And so while I was watching the game and kind of zoning out on my couch, I wasn't paying attention, but she'd brought this cup of lemonade into the living room and the, the lid was off and the straw was off. And I just, I just, you know, I wasn't being a good dad. I wasn't paying attention to it. And lo and behold, sure enough, the lemonade just spills everywhere, all over the side table, into the drawer, down onto the floor, just sticky lemonade everywhere. And it was not a bright and shining parenting moment for me. I did not respond with, uh, you know, all patience and, and grace. I, I said, no, it wasn't unkind, but I said, I was like, Jane, you better clean that up. And she's four, okay? So she looks up at me, and I'm like, I'm, Jane, I'm, I've told you not to bring lemonade. And, and she's like, what, what, are you, what are you even talking about, Dad? And I was like, well, honey, you're, you're going to have to clean that up. And she just looks up at me and goes, no! just burst into tears and I realized yeah you're right that was you know and so I, I, yeah, I went and cleaned it up and all of that but I think that this is a little bit like what we think how we think God responds to us when we find ourselves in a mess maybe a mess that we have made maybe a mess that has happened all around us and we think that God looks at us and says oh you've done it you've gone and done it I told you not to do it if you just read the Bible but you've, you've gone and done it okay now you clean that up and we just look up at God and we're like, bah! you know, all of a sudden we're like the four-year-old. And we think this is how God responds to our mess is to say, well, it's your fault, so you clean it up. Or, or we think that God wants nothing to do with our mess. That God's sort of freaked out by it and says, oh, nope, that's not, my, that's not my game. I'm not about that. In fact, very often when we think of the Bible, we think it is a bunch of stories of perfect people whose lives are nothing like ours. And so maybe when you think about a series like this, you're thinking, how is it called the story of us? How is it the story of us? Because aren't these great people of faith and Abraham and they got miracles and all that? I'm just an ordinary person and more than that, my life just, it doesn't seem to work this way. But actually, if you've been paying attention during this series, you will, have, you will have noticed that these are not perfect people. These are deeply broken people that God somehow allows to participate in his promise. Whenever we get the sense that says, well, do imperfect people get to participate? Do imperfect people get to join in to benefit from the promise of God, the covenant of God, the mercy of God? These stories in the series say to us, yes, we do. Because in a very real sense, yeah, this is the story of Abraham, which actually we find ourselves in this story. And so we say, no, it's the story of us. But the closer we look at it, it's actually the story of grace. It's the story of God meeting us, God showing up with his mercy in the middle of our mess. Now, Genesis 19 is about as dark of a chapter as, It gets, they really, it really should be sort of a, a, a trigger warning that comes with a sermon on Genesis 19 because it opens with a story of an attempted sexual violence and then cities are destroyed and then it ends with incest. This is not the kind of story you want to put on a flannel graph for children's ministry. It's a dark chapter. It's the kind of thing that you might expect from maybe an HBO series, but you wouldn't expect from the pages of Scripture. So the question for us is, where is God in the middle of this? What are we supposed to make of this mess? I want to just read a few verses here and there through the chapter. If you've got your Bible or on your phone or whatever, your app, open it up and uh, and scroll down with me to Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And I'm just going to pause there for a minute. There's a lot of parallels between the open of Genesis 19 and the open of Genesis 18. It's the Hebrew storytelling method, because remember, this is kind of oral tradition, this is people passing on stories. The storytelling method is such that there's all kinds of little tips of the hat, all kinds of little nods to what's been told before. You can kind of recognize a pattern. Genesis 18 opens with these same visitors showing up to Abraham, but they come in the middle of the day. In this story, they show up in the evening, which is a metaphor for the darkness descending over Sodom. It's a metaphor for the kind of condition of this place. And then it says Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. In ancient cities, the men who sat at the, sat at the gate were elders of that city. They were leaders in that city. Now, I know there's a way of reading that phrase and saying, oh, Lot, he was slouching towards Gomorrah. He, he took the land that was towards Sodom. And now he's gone and done it. He, he's a leader in that city. He's just one of them. But I, I'd like to suggest that that's actually not the storyteller's point. He's trying to say to us, Lot holds a position of influence in the city and he's trying to be a force of righteousness. In fact, 2 Peter will tell us that Lot is this one voice that is trying to remain true in the midst of overwhelming darkness around him. And when Lot sees the visitors, it says he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet And then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. And so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. Now, if you were to draw a little comparison between the opening of Genesis 18 and these verses, you'd say, look, a couple things are the same. There's this arrival of messengers. There's a greeting by a host. There's a welcome into a home or a tent in 18. And then there's the serving of a meal. In fact, what we are meant to see, I think, is that Lot's hospitality links him more with Abraham than it does with the people of Sodom. Lot's hospitality is a link that says, look, this guy resembles his uncle Abraham more than he resembles the people of Sodom. And we'll see this even more clearly in verse four because you see what, the people of Sodom began to do. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you that night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. This is a euphemism. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Lot is trying to to use leverage every ounce of influence he has over the city and say, guys, don't let your wickedness go this far. And if you're following the story, if you're keeping up with the the way the episodes are unfolding, if you will, in this Genesis series, you realize at this point we've hit an all-time low. And I wanna say to us up front, that I think what we are meant to see right here in Genesis 19 is that sin is tearing God's good world apart. Sin is tearing God's good world apart. One way of understanding the story of Genesis is this. Genesis 1 and 2 is God making the world on purpose and with pleasure and saying this is very good, right? And then from Genesis 3 onwards, you start to see God's good world begin to be pulled apart from the seams. Right away, you see through human rebellion, you see the human race, their relationship with God being splintered, being fractured. In that same chapter, you see the relationship between man and woman. Adam and Eve begins to be pulled apart. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, the relationship between brothers gets pulled apart. Genesis 9, the story of the flood. That's the story of human humanity's relationship with the earth begins to come apart. The ground itself gives up the waters of the deep. And Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel story, you see now societies that could have worked together are now being pulled apart. If the story of Genesis 1 and 2 is God putting a world, creating a world and calling it good and and letting there be shalom, everything coming together and coming alive, then Genesis 3 through 11 is the story of the world beginning to come apart. And we briefly get this hope in Genesis 12 when God speaks into the barrenness, speaks into the dire desperate situation and calls Abram and we're like, okay, good. The story's gonna get hopeful now. The story's gonna get good. And then you realize even the chosen family is in need of saving. The family through whom God was going to save the world, it turns out they're in need of saving themselves. And so in Genesis 12, Abram has to be rescued from Egypt. And then Lot has to be saved from these kings that have come together against him. And then now here, Lot has to be saved again from Sodom. Sin is tearing God's world apart, but it doesn't stop there. Genesis 19, verse 8, Lot is responding to the men at his door. And he says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof this is heartbreaking we're looking at this scene and we're thinking no 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 no, not no and people have argued well well maybe you know in the ancient culture maybe there's something here if he's trying to pick the lesser of two evils is it his guests or is it his daughter's and others have said, maybe, maybe Lot's lying and that his daughters aren't actually in the house. They're with their husbands. And, and, and either way, either way, we're seeing Lot trying to choose the quote unquote lesser of two evils. And say, so, well, I, I mean, this one's not that bad. I mean, this is vile, but it's not as vile as that. And so maybe I'll choose this. And maybe, maybe that will be how God saves the world. Sadly, this is not the first time someone has tried to give up a woman to save their own neck. Even in this Genesis story, Abram tried to give up Sarai to Pharaoh. So I was my sister. Sarah gives up her servant, Hagar, and says, Abram, just take her. And now Lot gives up his daughters. This is the story of people with power oppressing the people who are not in power to save their own neck. Sound familiar? This is a story that could have been taken from the pages of our own papers. See, if sin is tearing the world apart, then our attempts to fix things are actually making a mess. Our attempts to fix this. Every time Abram tries to get involved and says, oh, I know, I know, I know. Here, just take Sarah. Sarah tries to get involved and says, Abram, just take Hagar. And now Lot tries to get involved. Says, yeah, I'll fix this. Just take my daughters. And all, this, all along, we're kind of slapping our hand in our face and saying, no, no, no. You're making it worse. You can't settle for a choice that is still evil. Our attempts to put the world back together again are making more of a mess. The chapter 19 ends in this really dark episode where Abram's been promised land and descendants. Lot ends up in a cave and his lineage continues through this really awful story of incest and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what is going on? How is this part of the story? And maybe it makes us confront a really uncomfortable truth, that sin entered the world through the serpent, but it continues in the world through us. I mean, think about this. We're so, we read the Genesis story and we're like, oh, well, the deceiver was the snake. The devil is the deceiver, right? Except that the pattern of deception continues through humans. Adam lies about Eve. Eve's hiding. Abram's lying about Sarah. And on Lot maybe lying about his daughter. There's a pattern of deception that continues. So well, however sin entered the world through the serpent, it continues in the world through you and through me. And this is what the Bible makes us confront. It doesn't let us off the hook. It doesn't say to us, yes, you can just talk about that awful world out there. Oh gosh, the world is just like Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible says, yeah, and the sin is also in you. It's also in you. I think this is a massive point because for all of us, it's so easy to imagine that we are the innocent one in the story. I'm the innocent one? Nope, they are the vile, corrupt, wicked. Ah, but me, I, I, let me ask you a question. Who's the good guy in Genesis 19? I mean, seriously, who, who do you wanna be in this story? Nobody. That's the, that's the storyteller's point. There isn't anyone righteous in the way that we think of righteousness to be. So if the world is a mess, and if our attempts to fix things are making it worse, who shall save us? How do we get out of this? I'd actually like to, to say to you that this is, ha- this is the, the goal of the Old Testament. It's meant, it's meant to sort of take us to the edge of the cliff. You know, the, the, the ancient people of Israel, they had three main sort of... Um, Um, groups that had influence in their nation you had kings you had prophets you had priests you first had priests and so when you read the book of judges the book of judges ends with this cliffhanger of the priests doing some very horrible things and so you would end the book of judges and think oh well we've lost the priesthood there goes them and then you say, well, but we got kings. And then the story of kings begins. You're like, okay, we've got Saul, like, no, oh, not so much. Okay, David. And you're like, well, Bathsheba, And then it just gets worse from there. And by the end of 2 Kings and 2nd Chronicles, you're like, well, we don't even have good kings. This is a mess. And then you say, well, we got prophets. Prophets are speaking the truth. We got Isaiah, we got Jeremiah. It's true. And then, but one of the last prophets is Jonah. And you read the end of the book of Jonah and he is saying, God, I am so mad because you have mercy. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're a prophet. The Old Testament sees the total collapse of the three groups of people that were supposed to be hope for the people of God. The priesthood can't do it. The kings can't do it. The prophets can't do it. And you're saying, oh my goodness, how are we going to be saved? What are we going to do? I think right here in the middle of Genesis 19, there's a little clue for us. Do you remember, have you seen this meme on the internet that it shows up every time there's a, there's a tragedy? It's this quote from Mr. Rogers. And he says, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. You've seen this meme on the, on the interwebs? No, okay, well now you've seen it. And I think this is not a bad, we can, we, can, we can take something from this. This is not a bad way of saying how to read the Old Testament. Just sub out the word helpers for God. When you read these stories, don't pay attention to what the humans are doing. Look for what God is doing. What is God doing in Genesis 9? I know what Lot is doing. I know what all these other people are doing. I know whatever. But what is God doing? Where is Yahweh, the covenant God? Where is He in this story? I'm glad you asked. Verse 15 As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife. Now notice the poetry of this, okay? The chapter begins with evening, darkness descending. And the hope in the story happens when? At dawn. There's a metaphor here of this new day, a new day. The, the mercies of the Lord that are new every morning. As morning dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. He stepped, He was slow. He was sort of, uh, I don't know, should I? And so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Now, catch this phrase the Lord being merciful to him. Aren't you glad for the mercy of the Lord? Even when we linger, even when we say, I don't know, should I? I mean, can I? What if? the mercy of the Lord takes them by the hand and says, brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So this is what I want to say to us, church, is God is merciful in the middle of our mess to meet us and to lead us out. God is merciful to meet us in the mess. God's not looking at the mess of your situations and saying, wow, that's, that's a real doozy. He's not looking at the mess and saying, well, good luck with that. He's merciful to meet us in the middle of it and to lead us out. Now, if you follow the story, it's not, it's not all sunshine and roses after this. And I think maybe for some of us, as you think through this, you say, well, do you know what's happening in my workplace? Do you know what's happening in my family? Do you know what's happening with my classmates at school? Do you know what's happening all around me? Do you know what's happening in our school district? Do you know what's happening here? The promise of God is not that he'll sprinkle fairy dust and it'll all be great. The promise of God is to take you by the hand in the middle of it. To take you by the hand in the middle of it. Where are the places in your life? You're not sure if God's anywhere in it, God's anywhere near it. Could this morning be a place, a moment where you say, God, I am trusting that you are somehow taking me by the hand, leading me out. Now, what I find so moving about this story is it is these messengers from the Lord who do it. The sent ones. Do you know that's another way to think about who you are? Every Sunday we gather as the church and then we are sent back out. You are the messengers of the Lord into your communities, into your places of work, into your neighborhoods, into your schools to take people by the hand and say, the Lord remembers you. The Lord is merciful to you. You see, there really aren't any places that are God forsaken. There are just places that are church forsaken, right? Right? Because God has not given up on any school, God has not given up on any city, God has not given up on any neighborhood, God has not given up on any community. But the question is, have we? Have we? And maybe we can say, okay, God, just as you have taken me by the hand and you're leading me out, let me be sent, let me be a messenger into this place. And maybe the best that I can do is not give somebody some false hope and hollow words and say, oh, it's all gonna be okay but just to take them by the hand and say, God's mercy meets you today in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the heartbreak, in the middle of confusion, in the middle of some very dark scenes. God's got you by the hand. How do you know? Because I've got you by the hand. And that your hand to them becomes the hand The chapter, towards the end of this chapter, there's this beautiful verse, verse 29. It says, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. If you're the underlining type, that's the one to underline. God remembered Abraham. This is actually a very significant phrase in the Old Testament. It was said a few chapters earlier about Noah. It says, and God remembered Noah and rescued him. Later it'll be said about Rachel and God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. And then in Exodus it will say, and God has heard the cries of his people and he remembered his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it will fast forward all the way into the New Testament when Matthew traces Jesus's genealogy all the way down from whom? Abraham. As a way of saying, God never forgets his promise. God never forgets his promise. God remembers it, remembers it. Even when the priests of Israel fail, even when the prophets of Israel fail, even when the kings of Israel fail, guess who shows up as in the middle of this, as the fulfillment of this? Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham, the prophet, priest, and king. Because God remembers. God remembers. Now, if you're, Looking closely at this story, you'd say, now hang on a minute, Glenn. You said God remembered Noah, and so God saved Noah. But in this story, if that were the exact parallel, what should it say? It should say, and God remembered Lot. But it doesn't say that. Why is that? Because his covenant was with Abraham. I think this is a hint. This is a little glimpse into what's coming, that Jesus Christ is the one who faithfully keeps covenant on our behalf. And because of the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, God saves you. Because of the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, God saves you. Now this changes everything. Because maybe you've, you've grown up your whole life thinking Christianity is all about God saving you if you're good enough. Or maybe you've grown up thinking, well, God will show up. God will take my hand in the middle of the mess. God will show mercy in the middle of the mess if I deserve it. I can't tell you how heartbreaking it is as a pastor to sit down with people who say, Well, maybe I deserve it. And there's part of me that says, No, no, that's not, this isn't God sort of weighing out the scales and saying, Well, there's been a lot of good, but boy, the bad. (laughs) Hate it for you. And there's another part of me that when I hear that, I want to say, Well, of course, all of us, what do any of us deserve? except the wages of our sin. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. The God who remembers covenant, the God who not only remembers, but the God who sends his son to keep covenant on our behalf so that he becomes the covenant maker and the covenant keeper all at once. And our only hope is the faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus. Yeah. That means in the middle of your mess, you get another shot at that, don't worry. Respond in in the way you should. But that means in the middle of your mess, you don't have to all of a sudden do these mental scales. Well, I mean, I've been pretty good, but I've been bad. In the middle of your mess, you could say, dear God, I belong to Jesus. And for the sake of your son, Jesus, let your mercy fall on me. There's a beautiful prayer of confession, actually. Christians have prayed for centuries. We prayed every week at New Life Downtown. It goes like this. It says, most merciful God almighty, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And you're like, wow, that really covers the gamut.' And then it keeps going, you know. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And you're like, oh my goodness, yes. yes." We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. And then the hinge of the whole prayer is this phrase. And now for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. But the whole thing turns on that phrase for the sake of your son. We are called Christians not because we've perfected the art of good behavior. We are called Christians not because our goal is to say that our whole neighborhood is Sodom and Gomorrah and we're so good. We are called Christians because we belong to Christ, the covenant keeper. Yeah, come on. Let's give it to him. Let's give him praise. And God remembered Jesus and saved Glenn, and God remembered Jesus and saved Betsy, and God remembered Jesus and saved Stephanie. This is our hope. This is why we gather. This is why we come week after week. See, the powerful thing about this story is that it's actually not the end. We treat judgment stories as if they're the last chapter in any God's story. We're like, well, we all know where this is going. Judgment. (laughs) But there's more to the story beyond Genesis 19, right? Think about this. What if the whole point of the Noah and the flood story was not the flood, but the great lengths that God went to to redeem his original creation? Because other, other people groups had stories about a flood. They had, a, they had all kinds of things. But what, what makes the Genesis story unique is the, the depths and the lengths that God goes to to say, let's save a family. Let's, let's save the animals. I mean, God, look, the creator, God, could have said, no, let's just start over. That was pretty good, but I think I can get a lion better next time. Let's just try again. Right? No, no. He goes to great lengths to say, let's save what I have made. You you know why? Because the creator is the redeemer. The creator is the redeemer. These are not two different gods. The creator makes it, then it all goes bad, and the redeemer's like, yeah, whoops, let's just go over here and create again. And the same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. He calls a family out of judgment because judgment is not where the story ends. See, God is putting his world back together again and he wants to start with you. God is putting the world back together again and he wants to start with you. The prophet Isaiah called this new creation. Toward the end of his his letter, he starts to get excited. He says, I see it, it's a new heaven and a new earth. John, in the book of Revelation, will see it. See, some some of you think that the book of Revelation ends with a lake of fire. It does not. There is judgment, there is a lake of fire, but you know what's beyond it? is when God puts it all back together again. When there is a new heaven and a new earth, when the dwelling place of God has come to be with humanity, when every tear is wiped away, when death is no more, and he who is the alpha and omega says it is done. That's it, that's the full stop, that's the end. And I think Paul has a glimpse of this in 2 in Corinthians when he says, look, 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 look. If anyone's in Christ, you already are a new creation. Yeah. It's Paul's way of saying, yeah, it's coming. Yeah, there's a future time when God's putting it all back together again. But you wanna get in on this now? Say yes to Jesus. Yeah. You wanna get in on that new creation thing now? Go ahead and put your trust in Jesus. Jesus. See, God is putting the world back together again and he wants to start with you, with your heart, with your life, with where you are. I wonder if as the worship team comes this morning, if you would bow your heads and just begin to open up your heart to the spirit of God and to say, Lord, Lord, I want you to start with me. All of the fracturing in Genesis, humans and God, male and female, brothers, society, all of that stuff. Lord, start putting me back together. Make me right with you again. For some of you, you've been coming, but you've not quite surrendered. This is your moment. This is your moment to say to Jesus, all right, Jesus, If you can put it all back together again, then would you start with me? Would you start with my heart? The very first thing is to put you back in right standing with God. Some of you, that needs to be your step today. Others of you, it's other relationships, other situations that you're like, God, would you bring reconciliation in this friendship or in this Situation as a little witness of you putting the world back together again. But for many of you, the Spirit of God is speaking words of assurance to you today to let you know that in the middle of your mess you are not Alone, to let you know when it's dark and bleak and just so disturbing, and it feels like you're the only one in your household, or you're the only one in your school, or you're the only one in your neighborhood. Today, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, no, no, I've, I'm meeting you in the middle of the mess. I'm taking you by the hand showing you a way out. I'm letting my mercy wash over you. I want us to pray this few lines from Psalm 51. And it's a prayer that is very well-known confession. Maybe the first time you've prayed a prayer like this, a way of saying, God, Start with me, create in me. The creator is the redeemer and the redeemer is the creator. He redeems by creating in you a new heart. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you prayed something like this. Others of you, it's just worth saying again. So would you join me and pray these words together? Create in me a clean heart Renew a loyal spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Would you stand this morning? If the men and women that are serving us communion would come and take their places at the table and then open up your hands just say it together. Say, I receive your mercy. Now all over the room, however it helps you to do that, to make that real, just say, God, I receive it. Your mercy. Your mercy. Your mercy. Your mercy. Your mercy, God. Your mercy, God. Washing over us. Washing over us, God. We receive your forgiveness. We receive your grace abounding to us, God. Your mercy. On the night that our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks to the Father, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took a cup. And after he had given thanks to the Father, he gave it to his disciples and he said, drink this, all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. (sighs) The grace of God is God remembering Jesus and saving you. And so we come to the table saying, and now we remember Jesus and say thank you to God. We remember you and we give you thanks. All over the room, would you just do it? Just lift up your thanks. Lift up your praise. Thank you, Lord. Give you praise, Lord. For your grace, for your mercy. Thank you every morning, Lord. Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So come, Holy Spirit. Meet us here at the table. Nourish us with the body and blood. Feed us. Raise us up to new life. We offer you our, our lives as a living sacrifice. Lord, set us apart. Sanctify us. Let us receive this faithfully. Make us faithful by the power of your Spirit. Make us faithful. In Christ's name. In Christ's name. We're going to say these phrases, they're going to come up on the screen. It's something Christians have said for the centuries. I don't want to declare it from the depths of our heart. This is the mystery of faith. Let's say it together, Christ has died. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.